In the name of the Father and the Son and God's Holy Spirit, one God. Amen. Well, for those of you who haven't been with us, uh, this is our final week in a fall series in which we've been focusing on really some of the most beautiful verses in all of the Hebrew scriptures, the last 27 chapters of the book of Isaiah. Uh, we sometimes call those second and third Isaiah, and we are about to start studying those in our adult, uh, in our adult Wednesday uh, classes. And if you have been here, you know this is the story of a devastating event that took place for the uh, descendants of Abraham. Uh, in the middle of the 6th century, they were overrun by the Babylonian army. Uh, the city of Jerusalem was uh, crushed. The temple was destroyed, and 25,000 of the best and the brightest among them were taken 600 miles to the east into exile. Uh, if you have ever heard of the Hanging Gardens of Babylon, one of the seven wonders of the world, uh, you probably know that Jewish slaves were uh, at least part of the workforce that made that possible. And the lessons that, that those people gleaned from those experiences are what Isaiah refers to as treasures of the darkness. Treasures. And so it has been my intention over these weeks uh, that these chapters can be for us a source of hope when the bottom drops out for us. Because as we have been saying, this is not just a story about something that happened 2,600 years ago. This is a story uh, that reveals to us the nature of the God who is as active in your life and mine as God was back then. And so one of the loveliest and certainly one of the most shocking of these treasures that came in the darkness of exile was an image. It was an image that the prophet gave them about how God was going to redeem them. And not only them, but also the whole world. Isaiah gives this image of the servant of the Lord. As Marilyn was saying, there are four poems in Isaiah. We call them servant songs. And uh, in them, the prophet gives us an insight into the very heart of God. This was absolutely new. No prophet had ever spoken like this. And so we get an insight not only into what God is like, but also into our calling as children of God. And what makes this so special is that this image of the suffering servant is clearly the model, today we would call it the paradigm, that Jesus uses in shaping his whole life and his ministry. So in order to understand this picture of the servant of the Lord, you have to hold it up against the backdrop of what the Bible considers to be the deepest, the most fundamental of human problems. The Bible asserts that God, out of God's generosity, made everything that is and called it good. The Bible is very clear. God is love. I want to bless you, God says to, uh, to Abraham. But of course, that came as news to Abraham, as it does to us, because he lived in a culture in which they believed that the gods were selfish, that they could really care less about us. That's why they made so many sacrifices, right? Because they felt 
like they had to get God's attention. They had to give God a bribe. So they had developed this profound mistrust of God that led them to want to take life into their own hands. I mean, just think about it. If God is indifferent, if God could care less, then of course you are going to live your life in fear. You're only going to look out for number one because there is not enough out there to share. And this fear has the power then to cast out love. The Bible is clear. At the root of all fear and evil is a profound sense of mistrust. So the story is told about a merchant at the beginning of the 20th century who had two sons, twins, who not only looked alike, but they had all the same um, attributes and all the same likes and dislikes. When they graduated from high school, they actually went off to college together. When they were finished with college, they went into business with their father. And when he died, they took over the family business. And for years, they worked happily, side by side. Well, early one morning, a customer came into the store. Nobody had been in before that and made a $1 purchase from one of the brothers. Because this was a small town and... Um, it was early in the morning. The register hadn't been opened, and so the brother just laid this $1 bill on top of the register, and then he walked to the front of the store with the customer, his neighbor. A few minutes later, he remembered what he had done, and he came back, and he found the $1 bill missing. So he said to his brother, did you see that $1 bill on the register? I remember making the sale. I left it right here. The brother said, I didn't see the dollar. I don't know what you're talking about. And the other said, well, that's strange. I remember doing this. Nobody else has been in here. I wonder what happened to it. Well, if it had just been let go, it would have been one of those minor mysteries that we all have um, that is never fully explained. But the first brother couldn't let it go. And so for the first time in their life together, a cloud of suspicion began to fall between them. Because an hour later, the one said to the other, are you sure you didn't see that dollar bill? And the other picked up on that hint of suspicion and the accusation that was implied. He said, I told you, are you accusing me of being dishonest? And that was the beginning of a relationship becoming unraveled. This unresolved um, mystery continued to fester. Other suspicions began to be gathered. It got to the point where they couldn't even talk civilly. Every time, the old suspicions would just come back, complete with all of the anger. And so it was that they had to dissolve the partnership. They literally ran a partition down the center of the store, and what had been a healthy partnership became a savage competition, each trying to get out into the community and get others to side with him. And for 20 years, for two decades, this was a festering sore that affected everyone in the town. One day a car with out-of-state license plates 
pulled up outside one of the stores, and a well-dressed businessman got out. He went in and asked the proprietor, how long have you been in business here? He said, well, my father was before me, but I suppose it's been all of 75 years. And the man said, well, then you're the one I have to settle an old score with. He said, 20 years ago, I was out of work, riding from town to town on the freight trains. I didn't have any money. I got off the train one morning in your town, and I was walking through your back alley. I hadn't eaten in three days. And though I had been raised to know it is wrong to steal, I looked through the back door. There was a dollar bill on the cash register. Everybody else was up front. He said, I slipped in and I stole that dollar and I went and bought myself some breakfast. He said, I have finally decided I would never have any peace unless I came back and made amends. So he said, I am here to repay you for what I stole and to pay you for any damages I might have caused. And the businessman was surprised that that story reduced the older man in front of him to tears. When the old man had composed himself, he said, would you be willing to go and tell that story just one more time? And so they went next door, and he did. Only this time there was not just one, but two older men crying as if their hearts would break because suddenly it was clear that an erroneous assumption had led to mistrust, and mistrust had led to the unmaking and the unmasking of everything and everyone. And I think that story serves as a parable of what happened to the whole creation. At the root of all of the fear and the evil that infects us and divides us is this basic assumption of mistrust for the Holy One. And you see, it was to answer that issue that God sent his servant. Jesus is the one with those out-of-state license plates who is God's answer to a bad reputation. So then, how is that work accomplished? How is trust restored when it has been so painfully broken? You see, when you're talking about trust and mistrust, sheer power is completely ineffective. You cannot strong arm a mistrusting person into trusting. As someone has said, you can scare a person to death. You cannot scare them to life. Somehow you have to break through those erroneous assumptions and show that you do love them, that you do want to help them. How do you take away the sin and the brokenness of the world? You do it like this servant, by first coming to live among them and identifying with their pain. I can still remember a pastor during the civil rights movement who paraphrased John 3.16 by saying, God so loved the world that he allowed his only son to be bust." into the ghetto known as Earth. Because, of course, at that time, the whole idea of busing 
was something that was antithetical to what so many people were considering. So to come and identify with, and then to remain loving, no matter what was done to him. The servant was one who absorbed evil rather than returning evil. If I fight fire with fire, if I give you a taste of your own medicine, then all I do is to multiply the quantity of evil. But if I absorb the evil, if somehow I am able to remain loving, even in the face of evil, then there is at least the possibility. There are no fail-safe guarantees. But there is at least the possibility that someone will change. Jesus found in that image of a suffering servant the secret of his whole mission at incredible cost to himself and at incredible benefit for all of us. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. By his stripes we are healed. And I would suggest to you that if you want to live into the Christian vision of God's love, that the suffering servant is the model. But let's be very clear about this. This is pure revelation. This is not anything that you or I would ever, ever have thought of. In fact, perhaps nowhere is it more obvious that God's thoughts are not our thoughts, nor God's ways our own. It really comes to us as revelation. Jesus came to announce, there is nothing you can do to make God love you any more than God already loves you. And there is nothing you will ever do to make God stop loving you. But that is a very dangerous proposition because he said that not only applies to you, it applies to all people. He came saying God loves each as though there were none other in the world to love. But he also said God loves all as God loves each. And to this day, that is a dangerous way of doing life. And when we couldn't handle that, we treated him worse than a dog. Even political enemies crossed party lines, and in a moment of rare bipartisanship, they did away with him. And the amazing thing is that he did not respond in kind. Rather, he embodied a love that we can never destroy. Amazing, as he hung there suffering on a cross, it was a Roman centurion who recognized him for who he was. This is the Son of God. Barbara Brown Taylor, my favorite Episcopalian, tells a story about two nephews. True story. One of the nephews was seven. The other was one year old. She tells about going to the one-year-old's birthday party, and she said um, he was just adored by everyone in their family, parents, grandparents, uh, aunts, uncles. She said he was a child who had never known anything but love in his first year of life. So on his first birthday, he was just so excited because, of course, there was cake and there were 
candles, and somehow he just sensed that this was all for him. So much so that he got up in front of the family gathering and just did a little jig of joy. That was my little jig. <laughs> she said, everybody in the room was tickled to death. Everyone except for that seven-year-old cousin who couldn't stand the fact that he was getting all of the spotlight. And so even as this jig was being performed, the older cousin rushes in. He harshly pushes down that child to the ground as if to say, enough of you getting all the attention. I want some of this for myself. And Barbara said it infuriated her to see that big seven-year-old treat that innocent one-year-old that way. She said, my first impulse was to grab that seven-year-old, shake him for all he was worth, and knock him down just as he had knocked down his one-year-old cousin. She said, I even thought to myself, next year, when that one-year-old is a little older, I'm going to give him a BB gun so he'll be able to get back at his rough-and-tubble cousin. But then she said, as I was having all of those outrageous thoughts about how dare you, she said, I was astonished that that little one-year-old, who, remember, had never known anything but love, he got up, kind of dazed, he walked over and did the only thing he knew to do, which was to embrace his cousin and lay his head on his chest. And she said she was astonished that that innocent return of love for evil cleared the atmosphere in that whole room. And she said she was shamed that a little child had modeled for her what is the Christ spirit that, if we knew it, is resident in every one of us. When the bottom drops out for you, and it will. Cling to that love that will never let you go. And then pick up your cross and follow him. Because this is your salvation and your calling. Amen.